Good morning, everybody at the 95th Street campus. John Calvig, new campus pastor over there. Everybody at Bolingbrook Campus, Hobson people, this is probably my favorite service because it's the one that we're all connected as far as other campuses brought together. Very fun. And welcome back to our new series, Strange Days. I'll just say it, we live in crazy times. Our culture is drifting further and further from the biblical directives found, uh, you know, in God's Word. And how do we handle it, you know, living in these crazy days? How do we thrive? That's the goal, not just survive. We want to thrive. Well, we're learning from these two guys, Abraham and his nephew Lot, who lived near the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And boy, those were strange days, as are ours. You know, the strangeness of our days was made evident to me this week when I watched a horrific video. I, I can't show it to you, but I will describe it. It's the video of a security camera outside of a 7-Eleven in Chicago in an upscale neighborhood. And it's of footage that took place a year and a half ago. There's a guy by the name of Mark Gaines. You can see him in the video. He walks out of the 7-Eleven. He had bought a bag of chips, and he's just kind of standing there enjoying his chips when he strikes up a conversation with a mountain of a man next to him. This dude was 6'4", 300 pounds. Mark Gaines had no idea that this guy he just started talking to is a violent man, has a temper issue, has a history of losing it. And sure enough, Mark said something that triggered this big guy. And in the video, you see the big man just clock him in the face and hit him so hard that Mark goes out cold, just chips flying, hits the ground. And not only did he hit the ground, but he kind of rolled into the street. Well, the most horrible thing about this video is that you watch the surveillance footage as 12 bypassers walk by and pause and look at this guy dangerously laying in the street. They kind of cringe and shake their head and keep on walking by. Finally, uh, one guy comes and you're like, Somebody finally is going to help because he bends down and he grabs him, but then you realize he's rifling through his pockets, finds his wallet, and runs off. And after uh, laying there for two minutes, I mean, all these people could have pulled him onto the sidewalk, could have stood there to direct the traffic around him. After two minutes, a car comes, runs him over accidentally, doesn't see him, and, and Mark died. And you say, this is a picture of the world we live in, and it's just horrible. The word that I use is self-centered. Our culture is profoundly self-centered. Our culture is filled with people who say, hey, none of my business. My objective is taking care of me and my life. And if some guy's laying in the street and he's obviously a mess, that's his business, not mine. And the, I just worry about myself and I look the other way, just reveals a very, very ugly thing about our culture. Now, some have argued that it's actually a part of the whole American dream. You know, what is the American dream? The American dream is that in our country we have opportunity for education and for 
job pursuit, where diligence and perseverance can yield uh, prosperity and the happy life. And the problem with the American dream is it's very individualistic. Our country is more individualistic than other countries around the world. Many countries are very communal, and, and concern for neighbor is very much a part of who they are. But in the U.S., one of the things that makes these strange days is increasingly people say, I am devoted to maximizing the quality of my life. And what happens with you and with others, I could care less. And I I sound judgmental, but the problem is it's in me, as evidenced by last night. Uh, I I got done preaching uh, here at church, and I went home, and as it turns out, my house was empty. I had forgotten that my wife and family were out. I love my wife and family, but, uh, you know, I'm also okay with the house to myself for a little bit. And I plopped down on the couch, and there was a movie on Netflix I wanted to watch. And so I was relaxed and enjoying myself greatly about halfway through the movie when my family arrived home. And not only my family, but I heard other voices. And then I remembered that three of my wife's friends were in from out of town, staying with us, and my wife and these three, all four of them, are in the Naperville Triathlon right now, as we speak. And I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah. All the lights get flicked on, you know, and I pause the movie, and my wife comes up to me, honey, I need you to pump up the bike tires of all four of our bikes. Mm. You would have responded, Fantastic. I'm so glad to have this opportunity to serve. But I'm going to confess to you the thought. Here are the first instinctive thoughts in my head. How about you big girls pump up your own bike tires and let me finish watching my movie? And you say, you didn't think that, Jeff. I did. Yep, I did. And in that moment, I realized, wow, that self centeredness that I'm preaching again. I'm like between sermons for crying out loud. And my own devotion to my own comfort and convenience and happiness was so evident in my reluctance to get up out of the couch and go, sir. No, I did. And I went out there and there was a hand pump, you know, and I'm sweating and trying to use a flashlight to, it's like 9.30, you know, and I'm, if, if you get graded on attitude, I failed, you know, as I... I did this. So it's a problem for all of us. We are a self-obsessed culture, and it's rubbing off on all of us. How do we deal with it? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah were self-obsessed as well. As we study more about these twin cities, we're going to find out those people were so devoted to getting what I want, and I don't care if you lose uh, in the the getting. But uh, Abraham, demonstrated a counter-cultural selflessness that is absolutely inspiring. Convicting, inspiring, and provides a model for us to follow likewise. He did three things. Three things that if we do, it will break the back of self-centeredness in us and free us from this ugly self-obsession that tends to characterize our lives. So you ready? Here we go. The context is this. Last week we learned that Abraham's nephew Lot made the really bad choice of leaving Abraham, really turning his back on God, and moving to the city of Sodom, this notoriously wicked, wicked city. 
And the decision to move to Sodom carried a consequence. In the passage we're about to read, what has happened is an enemy nation has attacked Sodom. Back in those days, they called them city-states. They were cities with often a wall around them and a king, and each city was its own country. Well, enemy nations, city-states, have attacked Sodom, defeated Sodom, and dragged off many of the people of Sodom as prisoners of war, including Lot, Abram's nephew. I'm reading Genesis chapter 14, verse 12. If you're newer to the Bible, the good news is you're going to find the passage if you're inclined to read uh, on the Bible in the CPAC. You'll find it at the very beginning. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Chapter 14, verse 12. They, the enemy nations, also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and all his possessions since he was living in Sodom. What's Abraham going to do? You know, wouldn't it be so easy to say, well, Lot, you made your bed, now you got to lie in it. Sorry, buddy, but I'm not sticking my neck out to go rescue you. Love you, but you turned your back on me, and so now you're on your own. I mean, that would have been the natural response, but Abraham demonstrates amazing selflessness. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household. Let me pause. 318 men. Remember, Abraham is a business owner. He has a cattle company with a huge staff. And in those days, you had to train your own security. Robbery was a real danger. And so Abraham, being a good business mind, had trained his workers to become security in the case of theft or attack. And so he's calling upon 318 of them that have skills in fighting as a result of their training. And he's saying, guys, I got to call upon you to help me help my nephew. It says, and they went in pursuit of the enemy, that is, as far as the city of Dan. And during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them. (laughs) Amazingly, Abram and this makeshift army win the battle against this city-state. Verse 16, he recovered all the goods. He brought back his relative Lot. And all Lot's possessions, together with the women and all the other people. What a victory. Folks, Abraham demonstrates selflessness through this thing called serving. Let's put serving up here. He serves his nephew by saying, I am not going to focus on my own safety, on protecting what's mine, or protecting my own life. But I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to risk everything in order to help you, serve you. And serving, giving yourself, losing your own ease on the couch watching your movie, to go be of service to others is one of the key ways to break the back, the grip of self-obsession, self-absorption. I saw this on beautiful display on my little street. uh, My next-door neighbor is a dentist. More importantly, he's a Christian trying to follow the ways of Jesus. And he was talking to our neighbor across the street as this neighbor was getting frustrated working on his car. 
The dentist found out the guy was trying to change his brake pads but failing. And my dentist buddy said, well, maybe I can help. And so I'm watching, it's kind of funny, I'm watching the two of them sitting on the driveway, parts and tools everywhere, laptop open watching YouTube videos on how to change brake pads. Well, I kind of mocked him. I'm like, so because you can fix a broken tooth, you think you can fix broken brakes? And he's like, turns out they're a little different. And I'm like, yeah, I bet. But all day on this Saturday, my dentist neighbor served and worked to fix this guy's brake. Took a whole day since they didn't know what they were doing. But he eventually did it. And I thought to myself, wow, how, <clears throat> how precious is a summer Saturday to a busy business owner? Absolutely precious. <clears throat> Got a tickle in my throat. Do we have any water there? <clears throat> Thanks. Absolutely precious. And this guy gave his whole day in service to this friend, which just inspired me because I don't know I would have done the same. Folks, serving one another is a huge way to be a blessing to others. Now, it happens in our church every single weekend. I got to tell you, I am inspired when I look around. Uh, Some people look at me and they say, Jeff, how many times do you preach? Thank you very much. Look at you're serving me. Isn't that nice? (laughs) Volunteer right there. How many times do you preach? And I say, oh, five times a weekend. They say, wow, that's amazing. I'm like, don't be impressed. There's nothing heroic there. It's my job. I'm paid to do this. The heroes are all of you. I arrive and I see people in the parking lot waving cars around and greeters grabbing hands with a big smile and ushers serving and compass kids, volunteers rolling on the floor with little kids playing with musicians up here playing their hearts out. You people inspire me. That's not the way of our culture. Our culture says, use all your hours on you to maximize your own happiness. And you have heard the high call of Jesus Christ, and you have made, I will be a servant. I will give myself in working and serving for others. And you inspire me. And for those of you who are not on board yet, I would encourage you to get on board. I know it sounds crazy. You know, your precious weekend hours, I'm going to work for nothing. You're working for the Lord and for the advance of his cause in our cities. And through the serving, you find yourself, it's not all about me. It's not all about, it used to be all about me. It's not all about me anymore. All right, let's move on. We are next introduced to a very interesting character named Melchizedek. Verse 18, this is after the battle that Abraham has just won to free his nephew Lot. And as Abraham and his men return from battle, they encounter this guy. Verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was priest of God Most High. What in the world? You know, I make the mistake sometimes of saying Abraham was the only godly man in the land at that time. No. There was another. His name was Melchizedek. People have gotten a little... Uh, confused about the identity of Melchizedek. Some have speculated he was an angel. Others have speculated he was Jesus pre-incarnate. Maybe I'm convinced he was just a really good, godly man. I could be wrong, but that's everything points to that as I study the scriptures. 
And he was king over a city-state named Salem. It's interesting. Salem later changes its name to Jerusalem. This is the city of Jerusalem in its pre-Jewish days. And not only was Melchizedek the, the political leader of this community, he was also the spiritual leader of the community. He was both king and priest. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus is compared to Melchizedek. In the Old Testament, the kings and priests were two different people, two different groups. They were separated. And yet in Jesus, he's called both king and priest like Melchizedek, a kingly priest. And Melchizedek was amazing. Loved the Lord, was trying to teach his people to love the Lord. And when he heard about Abraham, another guy who loved the Lord who had selflessly given himself in battle to rescue his nephew, Melchizedek went out with some of his people to care for these soldiers coming back hungry and exhausted. And they provided bread and wine, said, hey, can we be a blessing to you? Can we bless you and care for you in this way? Isn't that cool? Well, look at what Melchizedek does next. Verse 19. He blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high creator of heaven and earth. Blessing is when you pray for God's blessing to be bestowed on somebody. And that's what this priestly king does. He says, oh, Abram, let me just bless you. I don't know if he put his hand on Abram's shoulder. Maybe he did and just said, God, would you bless this man and his people? I know you love them and out of your grace just bestow great blessing. What a beautiful. He ministered to him physically through the wine and bread and ministered to him spiritually by blessing him this way. The passage goes on. Melchizedek said, and praise be to God most high. Now Melchizedek is leading them in worship. Praise be to God. And then Melchizedek reminds them, who delivered your enemies into your hand. It would be easy for Abraham to think he's the one who deserves the credit for the military victory. Melchizedek says, no, 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 no. God delivered you. What is Melchizedek and Abraham doing here? They're doing church. That's what I'm going to argue. Church, what do you mean? Well, this priest king has come out and he's caring for the people like our church cares through our benevolence ministries and other ministries. He's, he's uh, blessing and praying for Abram and his people. He's, uh, what was it? he's leading them in worship. Praise be to God. Let's turn and worship the Lord. He's teaching them, if you will, reminding him that the great victory came from God. And Abraham is just soaking in all of the spirit-empowered, loving ministry from this priest king, Melchizedek. And how does Abraham respond to the ministry he's receiving? Let's read the next phrase, verse 20. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The word that's translated tenth is tithe. You know, we talk about tithing, giving 10% of our income to the ministry that uh, cares for our soul and that we've been called to. And folks, this is the first occurrence of tithing in the Old Testament. Now after this, it's just all over the Bible. This becomes the God-given benchmark for generous giving, 10%, the tithe. But it all began here. How do you break the back of self-centeredness? Start tithing. 
You know, I know some people are like, no, when you talk about money, people are like, all right, I'll fix the guy's brakes all Saturday. Just don't touch my money. And our self-obsession is so evidenced by our clinging to every dollar we earn. And there is power in God's plan to say, I'm going to give. And just not a couple bucks, not tokenism. Tithing is thousands of dollars. I'm going to give it away. And believe it or not, there, my wife and I, since the day of our marriage, have been committed to the lifestyle of learning how to live on 90%. Uh, and actually, we give above the tithe as the Lord has led. But we give generously, and there is freedom in that. You talk about feeling like, wow, I am no longer all about me, all about me. When you start giving away your money in generous fashion to God and his work, it is amazing the freedom that you enjoy. And I'll just give you an update on the financial end in our church. We are approaching the end of our fiscal year. Uh, The end of August is the end of our fiscal year. And praise God, financially, we are right on budget. And we can speculate that we're going to hit budget, make it entirely. Maybe you actually have a little bit over this year. You know what our total giving is going to come out for the year? Eight million dollars at all four campuses combined. Eight million dollars. That blows me away. That inspires me. We're talking in a self-centered society of people who say, my dollars are mine. Don't go. We have so many hundreds of families in our church who have heard the command of Jesus Christ and risen up and say, we're going to do it. And they live on 90 and they give 10% to the Lord. And as a result, $8 million have been given away in just this church this year, which boggles my mind, inspires me by the generosity in this place. There is a counter-cultural dynamic evidenced by that number. And to those of you who aren't doing it, I would say, join us. Join us. You can give and say, Lord, I do it because you're the Lord and I want to obey your command. You can do it because it's worship, saying, Lord, I want to express my love for you in this tangible expression of worship. You do it because you want in the game. I mean, souls are being saved in our church at all four campuses, and you want to be a part of this great movement of God, and your money can help found the ministry that's going on here, but rise up and break the back of self-centeredness in our culture through giving the tithe as Abraham did. All right, next. Next, we come to another king. Again, Abraham has just finished his battle. Uh, This king from Salem named Melchizedek has come and ministered to him. Now comes the king from Sodom, you know, the nasty city that had been beat up and that Abraham just rescued. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Uh, So here is how ancient warfare worked. When you won the battle, all that bounty, all of that stuff was rightly yours. And so the king of Sodom Sodom is admitting as much. He's saying, I'm grateful that you rescued me, Abram. I'm wondering if you'd be so kind as to give me my people back. I want to try to restart my city-state. I know all my goods are yours, but is there any way you'd give me the people? Look what Abram says. But Abram said to the king of Sodom with raised hand, 
I have sworn an oath to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will, not ex- or that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you'll never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Abraham has prayed about this moment. And he's saying, Lord, I know I've, it's all rightly my stuff. I mean, wagons filled with gold and treasure are rightly mine. But you want me to be a light in the darkness. This whole idea of turning me into the nation Israel, my family into the nation Israel, is that we would be a light to a dark, godless community. And if I take all this stuff as is rightly mine, they're just going to shake their finger at me and say, look at it, he's enjoying all this wealth that used to be ours. And God led Abram to this unbelievable decision of taking a pass. Saying, you know, I know it's all mine, but no thanks. Can you imagine the king of Sodom? Excuse me? Yeah, I know all this treasure, gold, belongings, mine, but I take a pass. Why don't you take it home with you? This is called self-denial. Let's put it down. And self-denial is crazy talk to this world. To to a world that says, man, grab everything no matter what it takes. If you you can get it, take it. And Abraham says, I'm going to say no thanks. And in doing so, again, he breaks the back of self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is so connected with greed. And greed is this, I want, I want, I want, I want. And when you tell greed, sorry, you don't get It's a powerful, beautiful thing. I've shared this before. I use a phrase that says, I could, but I won't. Do you remember me mentioning that? When it comes to purchases and things I see others have that I could buy, I say, you know, I could, but I won't. And there is such a power in that simple statement, self-denial. It applies to big things like a house. You know, you see your neighbor's house and you're like, oh, man, I would love to live in that I could, but I won't. I'll never live in a house like that, and you know, I'm okay with that. I'll never have a car like that. Never. And you know what? I'm absolutely fine with that. I'll never go to that vacation or have that experience, and you know what? I'm fine with that. Folks, there is a power, a freedom that comes in feeling the desire or the greed and just saying, sorry, I say no. It applies to little things. Like McDonald's ice cream cones. Uh, I, got a, I got a habit that I'm trying to break, you know, and it doesn't help when they start selling them for 49 cents these days, you know. One of the things that kept me away from them was that I'm cheap, and now they're 49 cents. I mean, for crying out loud, anybody can afford that. And they're everywhere. McDonald's are on every corner beckoning me. Calm, 49 cents ice cream cone. And I've been praying about it, and I feel just the Lord saying, Jeff, this is great. Every McDonald's is an opportunity for you to practice self-denial. To just say, yeah, I could, but I won't. I could. I can afford that. I take a pass. And there is a power. Jesus taught self-denial. And just because you could doesn't mean you should. And to say, the culture is telling me bigger and better and do this and have that and be this. And for me just to say, hey, I got all I need in Jesus. And I've been led by the Spirit to just say, no, thank you. I take a pass on that. Folks, Abraham was unlike anybody in his day, or unlike most. Maybe he was like Melchizedek. 
But we need to rise above the self-absorption of our culture and follow Jesus to another plane and to live lives of radical selflessness. I say follow Jesus because this is the way Jesus lived. Do you realize that? Think about it. Where would we be if Jesus was (laughs) self-absorbed? We'd be in trouble is where we'd be. I mean, Jesus just self... Look at... Did Jesus serve others like Abraham served Lot? Yeah. Like Lot, we were prisoners of war. Captured. And Jesus said, I could look the other way and say, yeah, well, they made their bed. Now they got a lie in it. They got themselves into that mess. We were captives of Satan's kingdom of darkness. And Jesus left the security of heaven and came to earth in order to serve us. Jesus said when he was here, I came to serve and seek and save the lost. And he rescues us. And we are blessed for it. What about giving? Did Jesus give money? Well, we don't know about the money, but we know about giving his blood. What was the price of rescuing us? Dying on the cross. That's what it cost. And Jesus said, I'll pay. What do I need to pay? I'll pay whatever it takes to save these people from an eternity apart from God. And the price was his own life on the cross. And Jesus said, okay, let's pay it. The selflessness of Christ is the only reason we have the forgiveness and eternal home in heaven that we enjoy. What about self-denial? Jesus died at the age of 33. He missed out on marriage. He missed out on raising a family. He missed out on owning a home. He missed out on travel to exotic locations. And he said, you know what? I'm fine with that. It's not about me getting all these things. It's about me living my life and giving it away as the Father leads. And because of that, we are free. We have a choice. Can follow the culture and become a totally obsessed, self absorbed person about maximizing the circumstances of my little life. Or you can lift your head up and say, Spirit of the living God, lead me into whatever selfless expression. How can I serve? How can I give? And how can I practice self denial in a way like Jesus and like Abraham that brings freedom to the soul? Shall we pray? God, we bow before you right now, and I'll just admit what you know. There's a lot of work in my soul that still needs to be done in this area, and I know I'm not alone. So forgive us of our self-preoccupation and lead us to be more like Jesus. Jesus, you amaze us. You came, you lived to give your life away. Teach us to do likewise. Right now, we worship you, Jesus. We praise you because all that we have and all that we are is because you chose to live so selflessly to the extent of dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you. We are amazed by the way you lived, by the way you died. And we worship you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.